sermon in the topic of parenting. And I think it's important for us to remember the road that we've come down. I don't want to be lengthy in this, but I want to go quickly through eight principles that we've looked at so far in parenting. The first one, Christ-likeness. Imitating Christ. It is not only the goal of every Christian, but it is the goal of us as parents to lead our children, to train our children, to discipline our children to be like Christ as well. And I make that statement based on the fact that every single characteristic of Christ that's pressed upon you as a Christian somewhere in command or principle or example, the same thing, those same characteristics of Christ that are required of you as a parent are somewhere in the Scriptures also required of your children. Two, Christ is to have preeminence in all things. Colossians 1.18 says that Christ might have preeminence in everything. Folks, parenting fits into all things. Christ is to have the preeminence. The third thing, just to be a Christian, Luke 14.33 says, you must renounce everything. To be a Christian, you must yield everything in your life to the authority of Christ. And that includes your children. That includes your parenting philosophies, your ideas, your opinions. Everything surrendered to the feet of Christ. The fourth thing, if you love son or daughter more than Christ, you are not worthy of Christ. Christ demands your chief affection. Your chief love. The fifth thing, we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. And our children are not our own. Christ looks at everything and says, Mine. He is the Master. He is the Lord. And we are the servants. And He taught us in Luke 17 to say, we are unprofitable servants and we have only done what it's our duty to do. The sixth thing, as our Master, He has given us three very specific commandments in the New Testament concerning children. He has given only three commandments in the entire New Testament with regards to parenting and children. Three. With regards to how we as parents are to deal with our children. Let the little children come to Me and do not hinder them. I realize He spoke this to His disciples, but it is an imperative. Let the little children come to Me and do not hinder them. Parents, take heed to that. Colossians 3.21 Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Ephesians 6.4 where we're at today, 
Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You have three imperatives in all of the New Testament that comes from the Lord or from His apostles. Let the little children come. Do not provoke your children and bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The seventh thing, our Lord gives special emphasis to one of these commands because He repeats it twice. Do not provoke your children. That doesn't mean you give your children everything under the sun to keep them from being angry. It means that if your child is angry, You as a parent need to deal with that. If you're causing them to be angry because you're not parenting them properly, then stop. If you're overindulging your child, if you're ignoring and neglecting your child, if you're showing favoritism among your children, if you're doing something to provoke your children, then stop. If your child is angry because he's getting his way, then stop giving him his way. Your children can be provoked if you're not disciplining them right. I'm not saying that a child should be given everything under the sun to keep them happy. I'm saying they should be spanked and disciplined and trained and instructed and taught in a proper way so that your children are not living in your home angry. Don't provoke them. And then the thing we looked at last week, the eighth thing, the eighth principle, is our Lord emphasizes fathers. Fathers. Don't provoke your children to discouragement. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. And we can look at a lot of other places like we did last week where fathers are given the initiative. They are given the responsibility. That doesn't mean that wives, mothers don't have a place. They come alongside. They submit to the husband. That's clear in the Scriptures. But husbands, you cannot relegate your parenting to your wife or to the Sunday school teacher. You must give an account. And these are the eight principles. Main. We've looked at some other things no doubt along the way. Fathers, I stressed this last week, the more satanically controlled a society is, the more fathers ignore their children. And wherever you have revival and wherever you have godliness, the hearts of the fathers are turned back to the children. You are primarily going to be held in account by God for your children. And then that all brings us to today's sermon. I know you guys aren't going to go to, go to sleep because of the, um, the heat in here. Is anybody cold? <laughs> Sam, would you just t- don't please turn it off? Don't turn the heat on. Just just click it to. No, don't heat. Just just please turn it off, because it'll heat. Our bodies will heat it up pretty fast. So our sermon today. How are we going to bring them up? Ephesians 6.4 Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, 
but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We're not to provoke our children. We know how not to bring them up. We've looked at that. We know who is responsible for bringing them up. Fathers primarily, with mothers coming alongside. We looked at that. So, we have a good idea of not what, of what not to do. And we have a good idea of who must do what needs to be done. But now we need to ask the question, what is it that needs to be done? In Ephesians 6.4, gives us the answer. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now guys, I I don't know where you guys are at with this text, but I have to admit, you know, before my wife and I got married, and and after we were married, I mean, our first child came, what? Nine months after we were married, I think. And and so we didn't have a lot of time to prepare, but we read the books that were out there on parenting and we tried to prepare ourselves. And you know, this text comes up all the time. I mean, this is one of the major texts in all the New Testament with regards to parenting. Discipline and instruction of the Lord. Back then, I was reading the King James, or if you were reading the New King James, you know that it comes out with the nurture and admonition, or some of the Bibles say training and instruction. You've got discipline and instruction. And I can remember always thinking, what does it mean? Nurture. Admonition. I think it's a little bit more obvious, but you know, discipline, instruction, these words are much broader than just the the idea that you get from discipline or instruction. And I think one thing is, we've really lost the concept of just what what it it means to discipline. You know, when I talk about, if, if I were to say, well, that young man is, you know, he is a disciplined soldier. Well, we don't. We, we look at that in a, in a positive sense. But when we talk about disciplining our child or disciplining somebody with church discipline, all of a sudden it takes on this incredibly negative connotation. Which, which folks, it's the same word. And really, it's the same idea behind it. A disciplined person is not somebody that's simply been wrung out by a rod or something. And that may happen, but the fact is, what we look for in discipline is somebody who's well trained. And I can remember always wondering, what exactly does all that mean? And we, we you know, you kind of just, it, nurture and admonition of the Lord. All right, what, what, I mean, I realize that must mean that I must do something right in parenting my child. But what I want to do is I want to delve into this expression. What exactly are we confronted with here? I mean, folks, one thing that I want you to realize is the imperative, the command is not to instruct. The command is not to discipline. What is the command? The command, the imperative, folks, is bring up. Bring them up. And as I look at this, I thought, okay, I think... I think we need to take at least two sermons in this because there are some aspects to this text that I think oftentimes we go over. We get hung up with the nurture and the admonition or the discipline and the instruction and we forget that actually the text does say a couple other things. 
right here at the end. I'm not talking about the not provoking your children part because we've already looked at that. I'm talking about the, the second half of this text where it says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There are some other things here besides simply discipline and instruction. Well, there's the Lord's commandment to us. Bring them up. Bring them up. This word to bring up means to nurture up. It can mean to nurture up to maturity, to nourish, to feed, to raise. Now you guys, think with me about this. To bring up. To raise. Have you ever really thought about those words? I mean, give consideration to what's being implied in that. If you bring something up, where is it starting from? Whatever thing you bring up, where, what, what is implied in that? That it's starting where? Down. I mean, if you bring something up, it starts out down and you're raising it to a higher level, right? Folks, that is the idea behind that. We take something from the down, you bring it up. And folks, your children are down when they come into this world. They are way down when it comes to size. I mean, think about that. Look at little Isaac and little Isaiah, if you don't believe me. They are down in size. And then think about this. They are down in strength. I mean, can you imagine if Carlos grabbed little Isaiah and he tried to arm wrestle with him? I mean, for real, not just messing around. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm really going to dominate this little child. Well, of course he's going to. That child is way down. Folks, your children are way down when it comes to maturity. But oh, when it comes to spirituality and godliness, they are not just down. They are a long way down when it comes to godliness. You know something? That little child, that little son, that little daughter that's so precious to you, they may be way up there high on grandpa and grandma's list. They may be way up there in grandma's estimation. But I'll tell you this, the Bible brings us back to reality very, very quickly. Let us hear what God says about these little children that are so precious to us. He says, folks, they are down. Psalm 58.3, they go astray from birth. Astray. They are down when it comes to their way. Speaking lies. They are down, way down when it comes to honesty. Psalm 51.5, they come forth in iniquity. And in sin their mother conceives them. They are down when it comes to purity. They are down when it comes to holiness. Romans 3.10, none is righteous. No, not one. Not one of those little children in this room is righteous. They are down when it comes to righteousness. 
Hear what Ephesians 2.3 says, By nature they are children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. All of mankind, when they come into this world by nature, all of them, including that little child in your arms, is a child of wrath. They are down when it comes to God's acceptance. Proverbs 22.15 says, Folly or foolishness is bound up in the heart of children. They are down when it comes to wisdom. Genesis 8.21, the intention of their hearts is evil from their youth. They are down when it comes to their intentions. They are down when it comes to their wills. They are way down. And I'll tell you this, God has given you, Father, and you, Mother, the responsibility of bringing them up. Of raising them up. You have that responsibility. And you know what? If it's going to happen, you must do it. God does not say to you, well, you can sit back on the sofa and I'll do it for you. He says, fathers, and mothers are implied here in submission and in reverence to that father. You are to raise them up. You are to bring them up. And you must do it. You know, folks, think about this. If I'm upstairs in the Sunday school class, and I've got all the children up there, and we've been, we've been actually going through parts of a book and uh, I have some of the kids act out some of the parts and I show them what God did in the life of a Romanian woman under the communist regime back in the 70s and 80s. And If I said to one of those little children, because I wanted to demonstrate something for them, hey, would you please run downstairs and go to the refrigerator and get me a, a bottle of bottled water and, and bring that up to me. And that little child runs down here and Bang, 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 bang. They run through and interrupt Brother Charles' Sunday school class. And they go in there and they get it. And bang, bang, bang. They run back and interrupt it a second time. And then bang, bang, bang. Up the stairs they go. Now, if they got about halfway up the stairs and they took that water bottle and they just decided to set it down on the steps for whatever reason. I mean, I don't know what the reason is. Maybe laziness. Maybe they just got tired or distracted or... Just the inconvenience of it. It wasn't worth it to him anymore. But there the bottle sets on the step. They just leave it there. They leave it alone. And you know what just happened? It's not being brought up anymore. It's being left alone. And there it sits. And you know something, parents? You wouldn't think for a second to leave your children alone when it comes to physical nourishment. But you know what? Many parents, in fact, in this world, most parents will leave their children alone when it comes to morality, when it comes to spirituality, and when it comes to godliness. Most parents. And you know what? There are professing Christian parents that will do this thing and there they will let that children sit and they'll relegate them to that step all alone. Do you know what Proverbs 29.15 says? Now, I know there's a lot of Proverbs and to pick out what one says, but this is a good one to remember. A child left to himself 
will bring his mother to sorrow. Will bring his shame upon his mother. A child left alone. Folks, this isn't talking about leaving the child at home when you go off on vacation. You know, wasn't there a movie a lot of years ago a little child got left at home alone at Christmas or something? It's not. We're not talking about that. And I know down here, you know, people get all up in arms and little children left in cars and they die. And that, that is a bad thing. But that's not what it's talking about here, being left alone. That's not the, and I don't recommend you leave your child at home when you go on vacation. I don't recommend you leave them in the car. Let's just be straight on that. But folks... The shame being experienced by the mother right here in this text. It's being experienced by a mother because they have a son or a daughter who cause embarrassment and shame because they are foolish, because they are stupid, and because they are ungodly due directly to the absence of proper godly and moral and spiritual upbringing. Leaving a child to himself, as Proverbs 29.15 means it, means that spiritually you have abandoned him. Folks, if you experience shame and embarrassment from your children, it can very much be indicative of a child left alone. Now, just I realize... Even a well-tended child can cause their parents embarrassment. I understand that. But folks, oftentimes, it is an indication of parents' failure. Oftentimes, an obvious indicator of spiritual neglect, moral abuse. Do you know something? Hebrews 12 says, if you have a child and... Discipline and training is neglected on that child. That child is a bastard. An illegitimate child. It's an illegitimate child that is not corrected. That's what the Scripture says. Proverbs 13.24 stresses that to leave a child alone when it comes to discipline and correction is to hate the child. And it might very well be that we have in this very room, some who are guilty of spiritually neglecting their children. You might be the man. You might be the woman here. Now listen to me. You feed your child. How many times a day? I mean, you think with me a second. How many meals do you give your child a day? Probably most every parent in this room gives their child three or four meals a day. Probably. And... Think about how many snacks you give to your children in between those meals. And think about how many times your children come to you during the day and say, Mommy, I want juice or I want water or I want milk. And how many times you actually give that to them. Now, I have a question for you. Which is more important? Physical food or spiritual food? And if you have any problem answering that question, let me ask you another one. Which is more important? Your child's physical well-being or his spiritual well-being? Is that little body, the little body that they have, is that more precious 
Or is the soul within that body more precious? That's the question I have for you. You know what Jesus said? It's better to chop pieces off of your physical body and pluck eyeballs out and to even let that body perish rather than let your soul perish. How is it that so many professing Christian parents have come to the place where they can keep a constant flow of food going into their children, but when it comes to spiritual food, they are inconsistent and erratic at best about the spiritual nourishment of their children. We wouldn't even think about not feeding our children for a whole day. And yet, professing Christian parents will let one day or two days or even three days go by without opening up the Word of God to their children or making any significant contribution to their spiritual instruction? Now folks, do you know why that is? I'll give you one reason why that's true. There, there are other reasons, but I'll give you one reason why that's true. You know what happens to your children if you don't feed them? Last week, we, were, we went over to Matt and Priscilla's and little Sarah was in the high chair and she was crying wholeheartedly. And uh, Priscilla came over with a, with a little dish of food on it and she set it there on that high chair and Sarah went silent like that. You know what happens if you don't feed your children? That. I mean, if I if we didn't if we tried not to feed Joshua, you know what? If they can't talk, they're going to let you know by screaming. And if they can talk, they're going to let you know by their words. And if you still don't give them food, it's going to turn into crying. And if you still don't give them food, they're going to be hollering and they're going to be yelling and they're going to be carrying on. And you're not going to hear the end of it, folks, until you give them something to eat. And you know why? Their own craving for food, their own appetite, their own hunger is going to drive them to make your life miserable until you give that little one some satisfaction to its hunger. But you know what? On the other hand, when it comes to spiritual food, your children generally don't have any appetite for it. So you know what? If you miss speaking a word from the Bible after breakfast, or you miss your family devotional time, or you fail to pray with your children before bed, or you don't have your family Bible study time, or your Scripture memorization time, or you fail to give some good, wholesome, biblical instruction at some timely moment in the life of your child, you know what? They're not going to scream. They're not going to holler. They're not going to get all desperate on you. Nothing like they would if they missed a meal. So here's the point, folks. If that little child is going to be raised the right way, if they are going to be fed spiritual food, guess what? If they're not going to be left alone, if you're going to be consistent with their spiritual feeding, which wouldn't you say ought to be done at least as much as you would feed their bot folks? If you are agreeing with me that their soul is more valuable than their body, then doesn't it seem logical? Doesn't it seem biblical? Doesn't it seem right 
that you would feed their soul at least as much as you fed their body? I mean, doesn't that seem right? Doesn't that seem appropriate? If it is indeed so much more important than parents, I'll tell you this. Guess what? They have no appetite for it. If you're going to feed them that much, then guess what? Your spiritual appetite must be the pace setter. Your spiritual appetite is going to be the very matter that is going to keep your children fed spiritually. I'll guarantee you this, folks. Your appetite. You know what? Parents, generally, Christian parents do not fail to feed their children, instruct their children, discipline their children, train their children in a biblically and a godly fashion because they are ignorant. Do you know why they generally don't do it? Because their own spiritual appetite fails. That's the reality, folks. When your appetite, when your zeal for the Lord is gone, then you know what happens? That child gets left on the stair. This is at the heart of the matter. You know what? Parents, they somewhere lose. Brother Charles made reference to it. They, they lose that likeness to the newborn infants who are longing for the pure and sincere milk of the Word of God as Peter tells us they should. The radical, hot, burning fires of the heart have somewhere grown cold. The pure glow of our first love, it gets dim, folks. It gets cooled off. Oh, when our hearts are hungrily crying after God. Folks, parents, this is the heart of the matter. When your heart is desperate for God, when you can say, like the old King James Bible says back in the Psalms, I go hard after God. When that is the testimony of your life, when you are hard after God, when you can say, oh, my soul, it's thirsty. I'm like that deer panting for these flowing streams. So pants my soul for you, O oh God. And you're saying, when can I come? When, you're, when your heart is longing to be in prayer. When you're longing to be in the Word. When you're finding in it riches and jewels and satisfaction. When you look at Christ and you say, oh, He is lovely. Altogether lovely. As we heard. Altogether. When you are finding your heart stirred like this and the emotions and the infections and the love. When you can look at God's law and say, oh, how love I thy law. When these are the things that come up. When the songs of Zion are on your lips. When Christ is, is upon your affections. Parents, then you will feed your children spiritually. You know what? They will catch the burning rays of your life. Everybody in your life will. Not just your children. The people in your workplace will. The other folks in your household will. You know what? You can be ignorant. You can be untrained. And to a great degree, biblically untaught. You can be a babe in Christ. But if your heart is aflame, I'll guarantee you're giving something to your children. This is a fact, folks. When we leave our children alone, it is indicative more than anything else of the condition of our hearts. And folks, you need to understand this. It, it is, you know what? I know this is true. 
If your child all of a sudden lost its appetite and never asked you for food, you would begin to feed it much less. In fact, it would become a concern to you. And you start to think, my child's sick. Well, folks, the Bible tells us that spiritually, when your child comes into this world, they are sick. And they don't have an appetite for spiritual things. And yet, that doesn't alarm us that much. And parents, if you will continue to feed that child, you cannot base it upon their appetite. You know what? Don't be surprised if your child doesn't run to you and say, Dad, you didn't open up the Word with us tonight. We didn't do our Scripture memorization. We didn't have family devotions. Don't be surprised if that doesn't happen. Your appetite, parents. Your appetite. If you're going to bring up those children, parents, mothers, fathers, this is at the heart of the matter. You must be on fire. Coldness, deadness, apathy in our own life is going to lead to that spiritual neglect. Remember, folks, we must chiefly love Christ. Let us nurture a hot and a passionate love in our hearts for Him. You say, such language. I'll I'll tell you this, folks. As I've heard somebody else say, we serve a jealous lover. And He loves His people intently and passionately. And He means to have that love returned back to Him. And when you love Christ with that hot and passionate love, I'll tell you this, your children will be benefited. Your children will gather the overflow of that. They will be greatly benefited. When God is our delight. Oh, folks, then we are in the place to be a useful tool for bringing up these children that He's committed to us. We must have a Godward bent. You know what? Parents, I want to warn you of this. Beware of slipping into spiritual apathy. Beware of that. Beware! We so often forget this is a war. Beware! You are not stronger than Satan. You are not. And he will come along and he will begin to push you. And it's, it's, not, it's not you're walking this way and all of a sudden he comes along and slams you and makes you go back the other way. You know Satan's devices. You're walking the path. And he comes along and he begins to slightly exert pressure on you to go sideways. And if he can take you off the trail, off the track, by only a degree, you know what happens a thousand miles down the road? You are way off the path. Have you ever read Pilgrim's Progress and seen how it happened just that way? There were two trails. And you know what? Both paths looked like they actually ran side by side. They were parallel. But oh, one just so slightly deviated. And they went on that one. And before they knew it, they were a long ways off the way. And you know what this happens? It happens by degrees. You're, you're in this spiritual high. Next thing you know, you're in a spiritual low. But you know what? It didn't happen by magic. 
If you go back and trace your steps, you digressed a little at a time. A little at a time. You moved away. You moved away. And you know, you have some idea in your lives about what it is that will distract your heart from Christ. You know what it is that cools your heart down. You get involved in the things of the world. You get wrapped up. You get busy. You remember the parable of the soils? What was it that distracted? What was it? What was it that entangled? What was it that kept people from being fruitful? I'll tell you, it's the cares of this world, folks. They're like those weeds. They come up and they strangle. And you get involved in the cares and the Word of God. Oh, you're maybe not just totally ignoring it, but you're not chewing on it. You're not giving yourself... You know what? This is battle, folks. And it calls for severe measures. And there may be times you just need to get away. You know what? You'll take a day off of work to do what? Vacation? Do different things? Sometimes, you know what? You need to just call in. If you've got that flexibility, you've got that time, you've got that ability, you know what? Call in. Say, I want to be in until noon. You spend that whole morning just reading your Bible. You take a whole afternoon off and do nothing but just fast and get before God on your face. You know what? This is, this is radical. This is Yes, it is. But this is a battle, folks. And is it worth it? Your children's souls are at stake. And if you don't believe that you don't have a part to play in that, then you have not properly read the Proverbs. Because it speaks much about children, my son, my daughter, listen to my commandments and live. There is life involved here. There is death involved here. Yes, it may seem radical. We need to fast and we need to pray and we need to dive into that Word and we need to get serious with God and we need to plead. And I'll tell you this, folks, All your efforts are nothing if you've got sin in your life. Because you know what the psalmist said. As long as he regarded iniquity in his heart, God was not going to hear his prayers. You know what? We need to get serious with God. We need to get serious with our sin. We need to get serious about the souls of our children. If you've got sin in your life, then you need to confess it. And you need to repent of it. Because you're not even going to start on this road. You want to know one of the one of the easiest and clearest paths to finding yourself in the land of barrenness spiritually? You just harbor sin in your heart, unconfessed, unrepented of. It'll land you right there. Because once you grieve the Spirit of God in your life, all the wells, all the wellsprings of heaven, I guarantee, are going to be stopped in your life. Because that very Spirit of God who you have quenched is the very person, the very person of the Godhead that God has ordained to fill your life and fill you with the fruits of the Spirit. Joy. You think you're going to have joy in your life once the Spirit of God is grieved? Where do you think that joy comes from? It's a fruit of the Spirit. And I'll tell you this, when the joy of the Lord goes out the window, what else goes out the window? The joy of the Lord is my strength. Your joy goes, your strength is gone. You walk around with a sour, sullen face before your children. You're not being any kind of example to them. And you're not going to have a heart to sit down and glory in Jesus Christ before them. You know what, parents? You want to make Christ look desirable. You want to bring them up in such a way that they are like we looked at last week. John Patton. He could look at his father and say, if that man walked with God, why cannot I? You walk around making Christianity look like it's miserable miserable and sullen and something that's despisable and despicable, something that's gloomy and downcast, your children are going to run the other way. 
they're going to find a thousand other things that they believe. And Satan will be right there to deceive them. And the world will help them right along to think that they can find more joy. in. You, you cannot tell your children that there is great joy in salvation and joy in Christ and joy in Christianity if you're walking around with sin in your life and without that joy. Now, now this is the reality of parenting, folks. You've got to bring them up. You've got to do it. This rests in your lap. And you're not going to be able to do it unless you are what you ought to be. So, sometimes, sometimes you're just going to need to turn off the TV, say no. Maybe to some things that might even be good. And say no in order that you might give yourself to things that are best. That are excellent. It might be something that's neutral. It's not sinful. Parents, you Christian parents, you cannot live like the rest of the parents in this world. You are called to a higher standard, to a higher plane, And you are called to follow a much higher Master. Which brings me to that point. If you run now around to the back end of this text, we've got these three words. Of the Lord. Of the Lord. We're to bring up our children in the discipline of the Lord. And we are to bring up our children in the instruction of the Lord. Let's think for a moment about the word Lord. It's used throughout the New Testament 717 times. Clearly. Clearly. I mean, there's just not even any debate about this. All you got to do is search the word out. Clearly. In the vast majority of instances, the term is specifically used as a title for Jesus Christ. Now, I stress, mind you, I stress that the majority of the time, Because it isn't true all the time. Lord is used to describe the Spirit of God in 2 Corinthians 3. The Lord who is the Spirit. And then it's used as a title for for God the Father a number of times in the Gospels and in the book of Revelation. An example would be like Matthew 11.25. That time Jesus declared, I thank You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Or again in Matthew, we have... Matthew 22.44, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. We actually have there God the Father and God the Son both called Lord in the very same passage. But clearly, again I emphasize this, clearly however, Jesus Christ is most often given this title in the New Testament. And I just throw this in here. I really tried to rack my mind. I searched. I believe I looked at every single usage of the word Lord in the New Testament. And, uh, you know, I cannot think of a single text in the epistles where the term Lord is used to describe the Father. It's generally God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't think of a clear example. There may be one. I, I just can't right off think of one. Usually, it applies to the Lord. You call me teacher and Lord, Jesus said. And you are right, for so I am. Remember what Thomas said? 
Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Acts 10.36 As for the word that He sent to Israel preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. Now, if we can say one thing about this term Lord, it is an extremely exalted title. See, you guys, we use this so much. But you guys got to just stop. Sometimes some of the things that are so common in the Word of God are so common because God is emphasizing it so much. And it becomes so commonplace to us that we lose the significance of it. See how Paul uses the term Lord in Philippians. God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. John uses this term of Christ in the book of Revelation. The Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. you guys see that? To say Jesus is Lord, oh, this term undoubtedly means more than this. If it means anything, folks, it means that Christ is triumphant. You see that? You call the Lord, you put that title Lord on Jesus Christ, Lord in the Scriptures clearly indicates the triumphant One. Do you see Him standing up? Brethren, think of this. I mean, you take yourself there. This is coming. That's not a fairy tale in Philippians 2, folks. Take yourself there. Do you see Him standing there, brethren, with every knee bent, every body bent, bowing all tongues, echoing the same magnificent title, Jesus Christ is Lord. Can you imagine it, brethren? I mean, every single individual person and demon and angelic host that have ever been, all the created hosts, all of them, bending that knee on their face, Jesus Christ is Lord. I mean, such joy and excitement and exhilaration is going to pulsate through our redeemed bodies as we speak those words. Oh, folks, there will be joy. There, I mean, imagine Him. There He is, triumphant. Totally triumphant. Every one of His enemies cowering beneath His feet. But they will. Although enemies in this life, they will still have their knees bent and they will still confess with their tongues that He is Lord. He is every one of His enemies. You know what? He's the greatest of all lords. Amen. That's right. 
it says He is Lord of Lords. He is! And it calls Him the mighty, conquering Lamb. You guys, a conquering Lamb. That is Him. He is the commander of all the armies of heaven. Commander of all His Christian soldiers. You guys, to call Him Lord means that He is ruling now. It doesn't mean that He's going to come back in some rapture and set up some kingdom and reestablish the temple. Folks, it means He is ruling now. Amen. He is ruling now. And He will continue to rule until every one of His enemies is laid at His feet. That's exactly what the Scripture says. Put under His feet. Folks, He is the conquering Lamb. There goes sin to His feet. Conquered. There goes death to His feet. Conquered. There goes the grave to His feet. Conquered. There is hell at His feet. Conquered. Conquered. There goes unrepentant sinners. Conquered. There's the devil at his feet, his head crushed. He is conquered. You guys, we sing that song. There he stands in victory. Folks, he is going to stand in victory. We cry. I, I just love this text, but as I was thinking through these thoughts, I thought, we're going to cry with the psalmist. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. And He will establish His kingdom of righteousness and joy on this new earth and reign over it forever and forever and forever to the glory of God His Father. To call Jesus Lord is a most exalted and glorious title indeed. And you say, why did I do this? Because it's the discipline of the Lord. It's the instruction of the Lord. You know what? You come to the book of Ephesians, Paul rings this note constantly right here in this book. Jesus Christ is Lord. Ephesians 1-2, the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1-3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1-15, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. Ephesians 1-16 and 17, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom. Ephesians 3.11, this was according to the eternal purpose that He was real, that has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 6.23, Peace be to you, brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 6.24, Grace be with you who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. What I don't want you guys to do is have any doubt in your mind that when it comes to speaking about the discipline and the instruction of the Lord, that you know exactly who this Lord is. Exactly who He is. If you have any doubts about it, listen to this. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. 
So whatever else we may conclude from the command, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Know this for certain. It is the discipline and instruction of triumph. It is the discipline and instruction of the Lord who has conquered. Listen to me. You may find yourself where it feels like you're up against everything. You, you may not feel like you have the strength. Your children, your parenting, it's beating you down. You feel discouraged. You want to throw in the towel. On top of that, you got a husband that's, that's after your grandpa or somebody in the family who doesn't like the mother-in-law. They don't like the way you're doing it. And they find fault. And they, they, and you know, you just feel like, I'm telling you this. We are to bring up our children and the very Lord of glory, the conquering Lamb of God stands behind this. This is the instruction and this is the discipline that He owns. That He commands. It is His. And you know what He says? He says that He will give you strength. You set yourself to do what He has called you to do and He promises to be there. That conquering Lamb of God, He is there. This is His directive. And the Scripture says you can do all things through this Mighty One who strengthens you. What I simply wanted to bring out today, brethren, the command is to bring them up. You must bring them up. And you better not set them down on the step when it comes to their spiritual upbringing. If you're going to feed their bodies, you better be responsible for that precious soul that lies within that body and feed it just as much or more as you feed that physical body. And if you're discouraged in all of this, if you're tired, if you're worn out, if you're beat down, if you're being persecuted and assaulted because of this, you remember this. The Lord puts His stamp on this. This is His You are guaranteed victory. You are guaranteed victory in this. Now, I don't know what that victory might look like, but you are guaranteed a victory. And I guarantee you this, you press on, brethren. You press on. Because there's one day you're going to stand there and those mighty armies of the Lord Jesus Christ stand there with Him on Mount Zion victorious. And we are going to be there with Him. And the Scripture doesn't even only say He's going to reign forever. It says we're going to reign forever. Right there at our side, we're going to be seated with Him in the heavenly places, apart with Him on His throne, and we are going to be be victorious. And like I say, I don't know what victory looks like exactly, but I know this, when we get there, we will be triumphant. And so you press on. We're going to look in two weeks, Lord willing, at this discipline and this instruction because no doubt, it is at the heart of the matter. But you must bring them up. And your heart must be in a proper disposition to do so. And you keep your eyes on that Lord who is the conquering Lamb. And you press on. And you take your hope. And you set your faith there. And you will have victory in the end. Father, please, Lord, give us faith to lock our eyes upon Jesus Christ and to press forward. Lord, we can imagine... In our mind's eye, every enemy, every enemy, not only are these enemies 
Christ's enemies, but there are enemies in every one of them. Christ with His foot upon their heads conquered every enemy set at His feet. Lord, we will gladly fall to our knees, bend that knee and confess with joy and with gladness. Oh God, I know You've promised us victory. And although I can't tell exactly what that will look like, Lord, the longing of my heart is that I can rise up off my knees after extolling Christ and see all six of my, or all four of my children, all six of those in my family standing there victorious and joyous in the land of righteousness together. Lord, it will be victory no matter what that number is. But oh Lord, the longing of our hearts is that our children would be there as well. Isaiah and Abraham and Carlos there as well. Lord, to see JP and CM there as well. Lord, the battle is not done. We know that there is yet ground to be conquered today and tomorrow. Except You should come. The battle goes on. Lord, we trust that in our prayers and in our parenting and in our faith, Lord, in all that You have done, in the hope that You have given us, we pray that our Savior would not be ours alone, but that it would be the Savior of our children. That that mighty, triumphant Lamb of God would not only own us parents as His trophies of grace and mercy, but our children as well. That blood that was shed might be mighty not only for the souls of one generation, but for those generations that come forth. That there might be a heritage to the third and fourth generation of them that love You. Rise up, O Lamb of God, and do Your saving work among us. Father, Your Son who died must be satisfied. Bring in those lost sheep. Bring in the straying ones. Draw them to Christ, please. For His glory and for His honor. For His majesty. For His namesake. Amen. Well, you are dismissed.